Hey everybody, welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I am your host, Ben Bukolsky, and today we're going to dive into the carnivore diet, eating exclusively animal products, nose to tail. And today's guest is, from my perspective, by far the best authority I've come across on the topic. Someone who takes an exclusively scientific approach, validated in science and research, and has a really, really good argument for this potentially being the most natural, healthful approach to eating. I know there's people out there who are uh, probably adamantly opposed to this, at least in your paradigm, but you know I challenge each and every one of you, as I do with myself every single day, to change your paradigm, or at least challenge your paradigm, challenge your beliefs, and have an open mind to the possibility of this being a potentially very, very useful approach to nutrition for you and your loved ones for optimizing health and longevity. Dr. Paul Saladino joins me today, and I've heard him on a number of other podcasts, done a lot of uh, digging into his pedigree and his research. And this guy is very, very bright, as you will soon hear. Um, He's got a rebuttal or a response or research to back up pretty much every single argument against carnivore or pro-vegetables or pro really anything other than meat and animal products. So Dr. Saladino advocates eating nose to tail, which is not just ant, which is not just muscle meat, like typically we would eat, uh, typically we'd find in a grocery store, which means looking at organs and looking at tendons and ligaments. Um, and those things are a huge um, necessity, not only for people eating a carnivore diet, but really for anybody who wants to optimize their health. There's a lot of discussion in today's podcast around why everyone should be adding collagen and glycine to their diet. Um, There's a lot of discussion today around the things that we believe to be great about plants, why they may not really be true and why they may just be wives' tale or a paradigm that was kind of inflicted on us over time uh, and why he believes that humans have evolved to optimally eat animals. Now, he does obviously believe that we have at some point in history uh, evolved to eat some plants, but Dr. Saladino suggests that may just be survival food when there wasn't an abundance of animal products. Your body, uh, you, you know, survived on having these vegetable products, which if you think about it, actually may make a lot of sense. We talk a little bit about um, antioxidants, people believing that antioxidants are, are necessary to consume in the diet, things like polyphenols, uh, fiber. We dive into any supplementation that Dr. Saladino is consuming, intake on, or his take on fish and fish oils, and even the thought around how much saturated fat we can handle relative to monounsaturated fat. So we've done our best to answer just about every question that came up with regard to the carnivore diet. So I hope you enjoy part one of my interview with Dr. Paul Saladino. We went really, really long and deep on this topic, so we decided to split into two parts so that it was consumable and enjoyable for your listening. Enjoy the show with Dr. Paul Saladino. Cool, man. How long have you been doing it? Like, So it doesn't seem like you're just a new person to this carnivore thing, even though it seems like you're kind of just taking this really uh, recent, um, you know, uh, ascension. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've it's something I've been thinking about for many years. When I was in medical school, I heard um, Georgia Ede uh, talk about this a little yeah. bit. You know, she gave a talk at the Ancestral Health Symposium. 
in like two. I've watched that YouTube video. Yeah, a few times. I think it was like it was yeah. probably in like 2012 or 2013. Mm-hmm. And she's in psychiatry yeah. as well. And she was just saying it was so interesting. She was saying, "Hey, in some of my patients, they're sensitive to things like onions." And you're like, "What? An onion? How could somebody be sensitive to an onion?" You know? And and she kind of brought up this idea, and it got me thinking. Like, oh yeah, I really think. Georgia Eid is on to something here. So, I, I, you know, the idea, and she kind of brought up this, this concept that like plants don't want to get eaten either. And I was like, yeah, it makes total sense, right? So I was kind of thinking about it through yeah. medical school. I had this phase in medical school, which was a number of years ago, where I was joking with my friends and I was like, I only eat things that start with the letter F. I only eat things with faces and fungus and fruit. Because, you know, I was like, at that time, I was yeah. like, maybe those things don't want to kill us. And maybe those things don't are not trying to poison us with all their plant toxins. I stopped eating, you know, all the leaves and the seeds and the roots and the stems. And that kind of made sense. And then I think that, you know, I didn't really notice a major difference. And I went back to kind of doing like paleo, like an organic paleo type thing. But, you know, within the last year, I've been strict carnivore now for probably almost seven months. And uh, but leading up to that, I was thinking about it uh, as well. So within the last year, I've been kind of doing experiments and then about seven months for me, strict carnivore. It's been a cool journey, man. And now, so objectively, what have you seen your blood markers do? That would be, you know, the ultimate objective analysis is like, did you do preemptive bloods compared to, you know, three months, six months, and eventually 12 months down the line? Yeah, yeah. I definitely, because I'm a functional medicine doc and I'm interested in that kind of stuff, I did a lot. I have done a lot of blood work over the last three to four to five years. I've been in residency for four years now, and I've been kind of experimenting with functional medicine you know, investigations. So I've done like nutritional analyses and looked at inflammatory markers and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, basically what I saw was that my inflammatory markers got better. So if we're just looking at inflammatory markers, there's the one that people talk about is HSCRP, which is high sensitivity CRP. And that one got better. So prior to doing a carnivore diet, I was doing what I thought was amazing. I was doing organic paleo and a lot of times autoimmune paleo. And I, I wasn't messing around. Like I was really trying to do good things on that diet. And I would see HSCRP values between 0.5 and 1.2 or 1.1. And then sometimes I would also check things like 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine, which is this like mouthful. It's one of the measures of DNA damage. And it's something that I think mm-hmm. people are going to start talking about more and more because as an aside, you know, people that tout vegetables say, uh, oh, they, they improve DNA damage markers and 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine or 8-OH2-GG is one of the markers they use to, to, to you know, substantiate those claims about the vegetables. But um, when I went carnivore, my 8-OH2-DG went down, meaning that I had less evidence of DNA damage, at least by that marker. So the last time I checked, was with a Genova Nutri-Eval panel, and it was three, which is pretty low. And I think prior to that, it was like five or six. And the units on that one are sort of just uh, a relative unit for, for that individual measure. And then you can look at things like lipid peroxides. My lipid peroxides went down um, when I started doing carnivore as well. So in terms of inflammatory markers, they all went down. And then in terms of other blood work, you know, the kidney function didn't change at all. There's this, There's this false notion. There's this misconception that a lot of protein is going to hurt your kidneys. And I think that this has really been 
pretty much completely debunked. And, you know, you can talk to nephrologists. I've talked to colleagues in nephrology and Sean Baker has had Jason Fung on his podcast, who's a nephrologist. And they've all pretty much said, yeah, there's no evidence that protein is hard on the kidneys. It's kind of a misconception because when you eat a lot of protein, your BUN, your blood urea nitrogen goes up, but that's not a pathogenic measure. It just says, hey, you're eating a lot of protein. It's not a directly pathogenic molecule to the kidneys, but we get the ideas get conflated because in people with kidney disease, the BUN also rises because the kidneys are not clearing the BUN. But in carnivores or people that are eating a lot of meat, they just have more BUN. It's not pathologic. So, right. How much protein you eat on a day to day basis? Me, uh, probably upwards of three hundred grams. Yep. Yeah. And your body weight is? My body weight is 170. Yeah. So, I mean, two times your body weight, like almost coming up on that, right? Definitely on some days, I think I'm eating two times my body weight. If you include collagen, you know, in that measure, then absolutely. Um, I'm just talking, you know, I'll eat 300 plus grams of protein from muscle meat alone. Right. Because, you know, I mean, the, the rough measure is 100 to 115 grams of protein in muscle meat. And, you know, I'm definitely eating three pounds of meat most days. So, yeah, I'm upwards of 300. And how many servings is that, right? Is that like three servings is that or is that six servings or how often are you consuming muscle meat? Oh, so I I usually eat twice a day. Um, And everybody kind of does different things with regard to this. But I'll usually eat twice a day. I eat and, and you can you can vary this. For me, I think what works best is I get up, I do a little bit of work. And then within an hour or two, I start to get hungry and I eat breakfast at, I don't know, eight o'clock, nine o'clock in the morning, depending where I am. If I'm at the hospital, I might have to eat a little earlier, but I'll eat breakfast in the morning. And then I'll usually try and eat my second meal of the day early afternoon, two or three o'clock. And that's all I do for the day. So my eating window is kind of like that. What is breakfast consistent? <clears throat> so breakfast is, uh, is not, is not your traditional breakfast, but, um, not like frosted flakes and, and <laughs> no, it's not. 2% milk. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't do dairy. So I no, get I up. Um, I get up, and breakfast is usually salmon roe, which is so good. Have you tried salmon roe? Yes, absolutely. I love it. And so I'll have a tablespoon, two tablespoons, three tablespoons of salmon roe. Um, I'll usually do some raw egg yolks. I'll just crack them in the sink and let the whites go away. This morning they were duck egg yolks, which are amazing. They're you do them raw. I do them raw. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And um, for a variety of reasons, for convenience and, you know, perhaps I think some of the things in the yolk are a little bit heat labile and I'm just preserving the nutrients a little bit more and it's easy and it's delicious. And duck egg yolks are so rich. And then- And why no white? Why not the white? Yeah. So the raw white has avidin in it. And avidin is a compound that binds biotin. So so I avoid so the cooked, white. it's okay? Cooked, it's usually okay. I think there's actually a little bit of data that- when you cook it, it doesn't get rid of all the avidin, but there's so much biotin in the yolk that it's probably fine for people. I have just noticed anecdotally that I tend to react a little bit to egg whites, even when they're cooked. So I just get them out of my diet. One of the reasons that I started doing carnivore was for eczema and, you know, kind of this like atopic skin condition. So I can talk about that too. But um, yeah, so I get salmon roe. I do raw egg yolks. I'll do some liver jerky. Um, you make that yourself? I do. Yeah, I had a I did a little post on Instagram about that. I just throw the jerky on like the dehydrator and um, let it roll for about a day and a half at 135 degrees, and you get these kind of like flaky liver chips. Yeah, 
Yeah. So I'll eat some of that. Very cool. Sometimes I'll eat some raw liver and then I eat steak. And so I eat, then I eat the muscle meat. And in the morning, it's probably a pound and a half of muscle meat. Uh, that's probably what it was this morning. I had um, a tenderloin and a ribeye and I just cook them in the pan and I'm careful not to like char them. You know, we can talk about polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons if you want, but, um, and then, but I like them rare. And so I'll cook them in the pan and then I'll add, you know, sea salt. I add a little bit of tallow because I think about the protein, the fat macros a little bit. And then I'll either add collagen or glycine because I think a lot about that methionine glycine ratio. And, um, you know, Sean and I were actually having some conversations about that recently. So that's a whole nother thing to go down. So yeah, that's generally what I eat in the morning. And then dinner is sort of a repeat, you know, it may be a little more salmon roe or maybe just steak, but kind of the same sort of thing. And that's dinner at like three or four in the afternoon. And then just the fasting window, which tends to work. I think I sleep better when I don't eat very close to my bedtime. And where are you sourcing most of your meat? Are you hunting? Are you, um, you're just getting it from your typical Whole Foods or like what's your, your sourcing? I wish I had more wild game. I'm getting back into bow hunting. Um, I haven't done it in a number of years. When I lived in Flagstaff, I bow hunted for a season and man, that, that deer that we respectfully harvested was the best meat I have ever had. And some of my patients there in Flagstaff were bow hunters. And one of my patients brought me a, an antelope and it just tasted like sage because of all the sage that the antelope had been eating. It was so flavorful and aromatic. But right now I don't have any game meat. Um, uh, ben, ben, ben Greenfield is over in, yeah. is over in Hawaii and I'm, hope, I'm hoping that he's going to share some <laughs> of that meat with me. But um, for right now, I, just, I do Whole Foods or I do other grocery stores here and I go for organic grass-fed meat and that's pretty much um, exclusively what I eat. I think it's, the sourcing of the meat is important to me for a variety of reasons. There's so many interesting conversations people are having now about sustainability and greenhouse gases. And I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Alan Savory, but this idea that, well, there's this really amazing concept that when we allow animals to do what's called mob grazing, meaning the cattle actually move and graze as they would want to, and they eat the grass to different levels, they don't eat the grass to the roots, they don't kill the grass. If you confine cattle into a small pen, even if they're grass-fed, they're going to have to eat the grass further down than they normally would, and it changes the health of the actual grass, and that affects the quality of the soil and the soil's ability to trap nit- uh, nitrogen and other greenhouse gases, the carbon greenhouse gases but if you what he's advocating is that we allow the cattle to graze to mob graze and that just means move and then they don't eat the grass down as far and the grass is healthier and then because of the manure because of their poop there the soil becomes richer and healthier and the soil increases its capacity to store carbon and nitrogen emissions so it actually decreases greenhouse gases which is so cool the fact that by increasing the amount of cows raised well on grass that are moving around plots and pastures, we can decrease greenhouse gases. So from a health perspective, I appreciate organic grass-fed meat. Um, and also from an environmental perspective, it, it just it mitigates some of those, you know. Totally. That's brilliant. I mean, and counteracting most people's belief around uh, you know, eating right, animals. Right. I mean, I, I respect people's opinions that eating animals is going to increase greenhouse gases. I want 
the environment to be around for generations to come, you know, and, and I think that we really need to think about that. And I don't ignore that, but, um, but I think that to uh, reflexively say that eating animals is going to increase, increase greenhouse gases is a little bit of a myopic perspective. You know, there's, there's so much more there that people are starting to think about. Awesome. I know you advocate eating nose to tails. So how, tell me how you start to incorporate that when you're just shopping at your typical whole foods. Like, are you getting bones? Are you getting uh, organ meat from there? Like, are you eating brain, uh, heart? Like, how are you accessing those uh, those organ meats? So I'm fortunate to have access to some of that stuff. There's a pretty cool grocery store. I'm in Seattle right now. I'm moving to San Diego. So wherever I go, um, you know, I'm going to have to be um, kind of thinking about how to source it from different people. But um, I, uh, at the grocery store that I go to now, they, they just get the whole animal and I can talk to them. They know me. They're pretty cool. And I say, Hey, I want the heart. And they go, okay, how much of the heart do you want? I want, I want the whole thing, man. And they just slice it up for me and I get the whole heart. And the other day they had a whole liver and they just cut the liver thin for me. And then I threw it on the dehydrator and they can get me bones and they'll cut the bones lengthwise so that there's more access to the bone marrow. I can't get the brain. And they don't, they don't have the other organs, so I'm trying to work on that. There's actually a, a company out of Phoenix that I'm talking to right now about sourcing tendons and some of the other organs and maybe the brain, but I haven't been able to get brain per se. I don't think it's legal in the U.S. actually to sell brain, right? Is that what you're running into? Uh, I, maybe that, maybe that is what I will run into, yeah. Although I think I saw people like were at the carnivore conference in Boulder, and I think that yeah. they were eating brain at some, I don't know, at some butcher like pig brain or something. But I think it's so interesting. Well, well Right. Yeah. So maybe if you're if you're hunting your own uh, animal, it makes sense to eat the brain. But like if cow, you know, mad cow scares, I'm sure the government <laughs> put a put a squash in it at some point. Yeah. So the, the thing about the, the prion diseases, CJD and these wasting diseases is that, um, yeah, I think that they're worried about the neural tissue transmitting it. But yep. the, 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 the sad truth is that, you know, when cows have, you know, the equivalent of these prion diseases, it, it can get in the meat too. You know, it's not, it's not just in the brain tissue. I was actually talking to somebody about this the other day. And I, I think that these are very rare now and they don't happen. And especially in like Europe, they're very careful about this and they will, they will necropsy like the cows very carefully to make sure it's not an issue. But I, I don't know why they're so worried about it because the brain, I don't think it's of course where it starts, but I think that the prions can get other places in the animal too. But, you know, that's part of the equation. Do you think the benefit you're the reason you're benefiting so much from a carnivore diet is because of your genetic predisposition, or do you believe this is something that most humans would benefit greatly from? I think it's something that most humans will benefit greatly from. I mean, this is the way that I see it. There's been so much interesting stuff about these evolutionary arguments, and there were a number of articles that just came out today. I'm going to post on Instagram today about something that I saw Miki Bendor, who's an anthropologist in Israel, post about on Twitter in the last few days. Just in the last few days or the last few weeks, there have been a couple of studies that have come out looking at nitrogen levels in the collagen of Neanderthal and early humans from um, these valleys in Europe. Um, kind of, and what they show is that the degree of nitrogen in the collagen is consistent with like high-level carnivory. So it's so fascinating. And if people have read the book Sapiens or are familiar with human history and human evolution, human anthropology, there's this idea that kind of homo sapiens was this species that started in, you know, central to eastern Africa, and then we moved up through the peninsula, you know, across Africa, and then into Europe, where we met the Neanderthals, and there was this interaction, and we all have some Neanderthal DNA. So there was probably some inbreeding or interbreeding of the species. But for whatever reason, homo sapiens 
became the dominant species. But what we see looking at the collagen from both those early hominid ancestors and the Neanderthals is that the nitrogen levels were so high that the most plausible explanation is that we were just eating meat. We were eating almost exclusively, well, animals, I should say, nose to tail. But we were eating high-level carnivory-type diets. We were eating fully carnivorous diets. We weren't eating a lot of plants. We can see that because the nitrogen enriched in these, in these collagen samples um, from plants is going to be lower. They can tell you know, how much how many plants somebody's eating. So it's this really interesting idea that evolutionarily, we're probably descended from hunters sure. rather than hunter-gatherers. So we get back to these roots and we say, okay, our ancestors were doing it. Should we be doing it? You know, this is, you know, 700,000 years later, or, you know, uh, in this case, it's maybe 70 to 80,000 years later. I think that the Homo sapiens uh, progression was, you know, only within the last 100,000 years of humans. But, and I think, I think it makes a lot of sense for the reasons that I'm happy to go into. But I think that, like, when we look at animals, and this is something I've said before, like, if you could design the ultimate multivitamin for a human, it would be an animal. Animals have all of the nutrients that humans need to function optimally in the, like, in the most biologically consistent ratios, in the most highly bioavailable forms there are. And you just kind of scratch your head and you go, oh man, that's incredible. Like that is the best multivitamin that's ever been created is an animal for a human. Um, they have everything that humans need to function optimally in these delicately balanced ratios that create... Uh, really ideal human physiology without any of the anti-nutrients and plants. And so in my perspective, there are genetic variabilities in our, in our uh, tolerance to plants. I've talked about plants as like survival food. And I do think that humans ate plants throughout evolution. And there are all of these uh, instances of indigenous cultures eating plants um, at various times and not having any major disease. But I think that what we're seeing, or my hypothesis would be, that humans are these facultative carnivores. Humans are actually animals that are best adapted to eat meat, to eat animals, but we can use plants during times of starvation as subsistence or sustenance survival food, but they're probably not ideal because of these other plant agendas and these anti-nutrients from plants. So I think that in my practice, in medicine, I'm totally intrigued by this idea that we could for people that are sick or have anything they want to optimize, I love this concept of returning to this basic ancestral diet, this basic well-constructed carnivorous diet as, uh, as just a really good foundation upon which to build or just to stay there. But I think that evolutionarily, I believe that humans are humans and that we are adapted to be eating this way at a fundamental level. Now, some people, like I said, may be able to tolerate plants better or worse, but for most of us, I think a return to a carnivorous diet would lead to you know, the basic optimal platform. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally, man. There's a ton to unpack there. But the first thing that comes up is like you mentioned, someone who maybe isn't in, in optimal health would still benefit from a diet like this. Because the first thing that's going to come up is, you know, you think of your average 50-year-old person on the standard American diet who comes down, you know, or, or is finally diagnosed with diabetes and, and you know, et cetera, metabolic disease, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they have pre-existing conditions that obviously makes them predisposed to different right. types of additional ailments. Would there, would there be some consideration around like, oh, maybe they shouldn't be consuming more protein or, oh, maybe they can't have these these type of saturated fat ratios? Like, or, or do you just think, hey, just taking them off all the standard American stuff, putting them on meat will correct all those pre-existing conditions? You know, it's a, that's a pretty big statement. <laughs> I think that's kind of where it gets to be individual yeah. and working with a physician is, is crucial. 
I do think that perhaps the people who are sick would be the people who would benefit from it the most in the sense that, you know, there are people like you and I who probably want to optimize. And I think you can optimize. That's one thing. But what we're really seeing, and I think some of the most striking um, changes people are experiencing in this realm are are in the realm, are in the this, this forum of people who have inflammatory bowel disease or Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis uh, or autoimmune disease, and those are the people that I get most excited about sharing the idea with and letting them decide if they would like to try this because those are the people who have this overt imbalance, and we can see the biggest change. So I think it's beneficial and viable for everyone. On a case by case basis, I think you need to think about you know what you're doing when you're adding in a bunch of protein. I had someone uh, message me on Instagram the other day and say, hey. Is, is a carnivorous diet okay for someone on dialysis? And I thought, well, that's interesting, you know, like that's probably going to change some of your parameters and you need to be a little careful with that. So in the extreme case of people who are very sick on dialysis or, you know, extremely sick, they're going to have to really work with their physician. And uh, most physicians are probably just going to, you know, <laughs> veto it outright. But, you know, I, I do believe, I mean, you know, like we talked about earlier, in that can, in that case of the dialysis patient, like protein is not, is not going to damage the kidneys. So fundamentally, at least theoretically, there's no contraindication to doing this, whether or not someone has the baseline stomach enzymes to be able to digest meat well, or has underlying nutritional deficiencies, which may take a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, tidying up before they're best able to do this diet is another question. And that's sort of the argument to work with a functional medicine doc or a doc that's pretty savvy in that regard. But I think that for most people, it's a totally viable thing. You bring up this great concept of saturated fat, which gets us into the, the fantastic lipid debate. Um, and this is a big question mark that we will not answer. Um, I was on the phone actually this morning with Tom Dayspring, who's a well-known lipidologist. Yeah, he's, he's a great guy. And it's really, it's awesome to just be able to call him up and say, hey, Tom, what do you think about this lipid panel? And, you know, I don't want to speak for Tom. Uh, and I appreciate all of his, his, uh, his instruction and all of his input and our collaboration. But, um, you know, Tom is not a fan of ketogenic diets if they change the lip panel in a certain way. But for me, I think that we're going to run into this in, in conversations with Tom and other lipidologists. I think in terms of lipids, we are going to run into a bugaboo in, in our society and in our Western medical thought because they're, uh, without getting too granular, some people who do ketogenic diets and carnivorous diets see improvements in their lipids. In fact, a lot of people see improvements in their lipids, quote unquote, in terms of LDL particle number or apolipoprotein B, which is a marker of lipid LDL particle number. But in the lipidology sphere, LDL particle number is the king. It's the thing that's been studied the most, and it's the best data point that we have to correlate with atherosclerosis. Yep. And this is valuable, but it's also, I think, unfortunate because what I believe we are seeing here are divergent phenotypes by which you can arrive at a high LDL particle number. And I'll clarify that. So there have been lots of studies, many studies, which show that high LDL particle number is associated with atherosclerosis progression. And people may debate me on that, but it's, it's really, there are many studies which show that. But the question, the underlying question is, is every elevated LDL particle number profile the same, right? Are there different phenotypes by which we can arrive at a high LDL particle number? And we're getting kind of granular in the lipids. But traditionally, 99.9% of people in these studies who arrive at a high LDL particle number are also insulin resistant. 
And they do so in the setting of metabolic syndrome. That is a syndrome of low HDL, high triglycerides, elevated fasting insulin, probably underlying baseline inflammation, elevated levels of free fatty acids in the blood. So the question becomes, is that the same thing as an LDL particle number that I see in myself and most of my clients on carnivorous or ketogenic diets, which doesn't have an elevated fasting insulin? You know, my fasting insulin is 2.9. My HSCRP is 0.3, and I've checked it six times. You know, my, uh, you know, my fibrinogen is low, and I have a small, dense LDL number, which is very low. So there's like this discordant LDL phenotype happening for some people. So this question around saturated fat is very relevant and very complicated. And I, I just don't know that we're going to be able to answer it. And I was asking Tom, I said, hey, are we ever going to get the study that says, is an LDL particle number in the absence of insulin resistance equally atherogenic? And he said, no, the study will never be done. It'll cost a billion dollars. It'll take 20 years. And what pharmaceutical company is going to fund that? So I don't know how we're going to move the field forward. I think it's going to be brilliant guys like Ivor Cummins and Dave Feldman um, who are going to keep having, who are engineers, incidentally, you know, and lipidologists who are eventually going to start questioning this. And I think in the next 10 to 20 years, we're going to start questioning whether this all LDLP is created equally. And so the questions around saturated fat get to be really nuanced questions. If we take a step back and we go to the realm of like you and I, you know, hunting in the woods with our bows and killing animals in a respectful way, I have a problem just intuitively imagining that a diet that you and I could achieve on a daily basis, like a Neanderthal, like an early hominid human, would, would create an atherogenic profile. Evolutionarily, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Admittedly, there is some circularity in that argument, but we, I think we just have to take a step back and say saturated fat is demonized. But really, what is saturated fat? Like, There's nothing good or bad about saturated fat. And our concerns about fat generally have to do with the oxidation of the fat. And saturated fat is a molecule that oxidizes the least of any fatty acid molecule. Saturated fat is much less susceptible to oxidation than monounsaturated or polyunsaturated fatty acids. So this is a molecule with no double bonds. A saturated fat molecule has no double bonds between the carbons. It's very, it's very resistant. It's very resilient to oxidation, whereas mono, poly, unsaturated fats are more susceptible to oxidation. So what we have here is a little bit of an intellectual discordance and intuitively, I just can't wrap my head around a mechanism for saturated fat being dangerous for humans other than an elevated LDLP, which gets back to the other discussion we were having. I think there has to be some consideration around lifestyle of the current human, right? Yes, yeah, sure. To what you would have been historically, where you probably would have always had low blood sugar. You probably would have you know, always been relatively lean and healthy and consuming saturated fat when you're not consuming any other uh, sugars and you're activity level is so high, it's completely different than what most people are doing. So I get mad. I completely agree with what you're saying. I think there's definitely tons of research that needs to be explored there. And the other thing I wanted to bring up was this idea of um, average versus optimal. Yeah. You brought that that term up. Um, like, you know, if, if someone's looking to be optimized, which is what my demographic is after, uh, is that something you believe can be attained, you know, while still training, while still exercising at a relatively high level on a carnivorous diet? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that there's a lot there to look at, but yes, I, I do absolutely. I think that you know Sean Baker is a fantastic example of that. The guy is a is a human wrecking machine. You know he just won, um, he just won uh, like the the world championships for the masters for rowing, um, 
And so if we're talking about performance and optimization, there are probably multiple nuances of that that we can look into. Some people might be looking to optimize mental stuff and mental clarity. And I think that in that frame, we can clearly say that ketogenic diets and more specifically carnivorous diets kick ass when it comes to mental clarity. What I hear more than anything else from people that go on carnivorous diets is improvement in mood, outlook, attitude, mental clarity. And that was the first thing that I experienced. So in the first week of doing a carnivorous diet, I was actually not ketogenic because I was doing honey and kind of experimenting. People may say, oh, honey's not a carnivorous diet. Well, it's nuance. You know, I was doing honey. So I was even using, I was even using carbohydrates for the first few days in the carnivorous diet. And so I cut out plants. I was not in ketosis. And immediately I felt more mental, um, just my outlook changed. I was just an overall more positive person. It's hard to describe. But you see these, you see these psychological benefits almost across the board of people doing carnivorous diets, which is so fascinating. So from a mental performance standpoint, yep. absolutely. I think people will get some probably unexpected benefits in this regard. You know, they'll probably find amazing mental performance benefits, even above ketogenesis. We know ketones are awesome. And when the brain runs on ketones, our brains hum. But, you know, even, even outside of that, there seem to be benefits by eliminating these plant toxins. In terms of athletic performance... I think that people can be pretty darn optimal on a carnivorous diet and you can titrate it for what you want. I think the biggest concerns people have are, am I going to be able to gain muscle? Am I be able to do glycolytic high intensity activity? And I think that the answers to both of those are yes. You may need to adjust things gradually to see how it works. But the, I think that a carnivorous diet provides primarily protein and fat. And in order to gain muscle, you have to overeat by a certain amount, you know, and whether it's overeating on carbs or overeating on um, muscle meat or overeating on fat, we have to give our body building blocks to make more muscle. So if people want to get bigger on a carnivorous diet, they're going to have to overeat protein and fat and then give their bodies the anabolic stimulus. And this, this is so cool because the conversation goes in so many directions. Uh, th th there's two sides of the coin here. Um, the two sides of the coin here, you know, some people say, oh, a carnivorous diet is going to overstimulate mTOR. But the other side of the equation is the people in your world or people who actually want to stimulate mTOR. And so, so we can talk about both. But what we know is that leucine and protein will stimulate mTOR. So when we eat a big steak, we are going to turn mTOR on. So we're going to get an antibiotic stimulus. And we do get an insulin response, but the insulin glucagon ratio doesn't change, right? Which is a good thing because it doesn't spike the insulin ratio too much. So if we are looking at how we gain muscle, you know, we, we can get IGF-1 coming from protein. We can get some mTOR coming from protein. And I think that that is enough of a stimulus for people to build muscle. If they are doing the, the resistance work, if they are doing the, the work to give their body that metabolic stimulus at the muscle level and overeating, giving the body the raw materials in terms of protein and fat. The flip side of that coin is interesting. I can kind of try and play both sides of the fence here, uh, that when we stimulate mTOR with leucine, the effect is more transient than mTOR with insulin. So if we really want to stimulate mTOR, or we really don't want to stimulate mTOR, we need to know that insulin is the major driver there. And that the insulin stimulation of mammalian target rapamycin is going to be more robust than leucine, and it's going to last longer. So if we're on the longevity side of the equation, the, the argument looks fairly good for carnivore because we're saying, okay, we, we are actually only stimulating mTOR a little bit. We are stimulating it for a short amount of time, and the effect is transient, but we're getting some mTOR stimulation. We're not overstimulating mTOR because insulin is generally pretty low on a ketogenic or carnivore diet. 
if we are on the other side of the if we're on the flip side and we're not on the longevity side and we're saying I want to grow, I want the maximum anabolic stimulus, then we're saying okay, you should probably be eating protein throughout the day, right, to get as much of an anabolic stimulus with the leucine as you can. Or you know, it's not the worst thing in the world if you actually want anabolic stimulus and you actually want insulin for growth, you can eat some carbohydrate on a carnivorous diet. You can do something like honey, you know, or you it kind of gets into like Stan Efferding's thing, like the vertical diet. And you can add some rice or something as a, as a you know, a, an insulin agog or if you want that insulin stimulus. But there's all these ways to kind of like leverage it to whatever you're looking for. Is Are you looking to heal from an autoimmune disease? Are you looking to improve your insulin resistance? Are you looking to maximize your performance in the gym? Or are you looking to maximize your performance on a glycolytic sprint type exercise? There's all these kind of like things, you do dials you can tweak. So if we talk about the glycolytic sprint performance, then yeah, I mean, I think once people get fat adapted, Volick and Finney's group have done studies with like the faster study that actually shows that once people are keto adapted, their rate of glycogen storage and replenishment is the same on a ketogenic diet, right. but it takes an adaptation period. I think that what people need to know is that if you're doing a mixed diet with carbohydrates, and you go to a carnivorous diet or a ketogenic diet, your performance is going to change. It's going to suffer probably in the short term, but I think it then adjusts and will go back to your baseline within a few months. A lot of people say, oh, my performance is bad, and they quit it, and that's fine. It's legitimate, but it will probably adjust long term, and your body, you know, you can be in a fully, you know, carnivorous state and have optimal performance. It just, you need to adjust, and it will just depend on your overall goals in terms of uh, what the metric is. You know, do you want to avoid the plant toxins and kick the most ass possible in the gym? So you do it that way. And I love it. And switching gears a little bit to talk about um, the term you used there, plant toxins. And, you know, some people suggest that plants are the most healthy thing we can put in our body. You've obviously got the counter argument. I just want to hear uh, what the counter argument is and why for our listeners who don't know. Yeah. So this is one of the most interesting parts of this equation for me. I think this is fascinating and it's a, it's a very disruptive concept as you're alluding to. The idea here is that um, if we go back to sort of an evolutionary framework and we think, um, you know, what is going on here in terms of plants and herbivores or plants and animals interacting for the last millions of years, what we find or what, you, what comes out of that with that thought experiment is the idea that plants are rooted in the ground and plants cannot move. Animals can move. So animals have defense mechanisms if if a you know if a if an antelope is being chased, it can run away. It's not rooted in space. That's its defense mechanism: is speed, and stealth, and agility. Now, an antelope don't always outrun the lion, but a lot of times they do get away from the lion. So they have that defense mechanism. But plants have no locomotive defense mechanisms. So over the last you know multiple millions of years of plant evolution, plants have developed plant toxins. And this is the part of plants that's never talked about with humans. It's just never, it's never talked about because in the functional medicine space and in all of these spaces is the idea that plants are so healthy for humans. And that misconception comes from epidemiology studies. And if you actually look at the studies that are interventional or you look at studies that have been done, adding plants to diets or... Um, looking at what is actually in plants, 
you see a very, very different story because plants have evolved all of these plant pesticides. So as a starting point, I would direct people to a paper by Bruce Ames. I've talked about this paper um, a lot. Uh, Bruce Ames was actually someone that Rhonda Patrick worked with in the past, but the paper is called Dietary Pesticides 99.9% All Natural. And in this paper, which is from the 1990s, they do a great job of really elucidating the idea that in these plants, there are thousands of plant pesticides. Now, these are not exogenous pesticides. These are pesticides that the plant makes. These are complex, very oxidatively reactive molecules, and I'll define that as well, that the plant is making to discourage animals from eating them. On the second page of this paper, there's a chart, and the chart is 49 natural pesticide metabolites found in cabbage. So in cabbage alone, you know, you walk into the grocery store, you have this whole vegetable aisle, you see cabbage, and cabbage is a brassic vegetable. It's also very closely connected with um, uh, kale, collard greens, Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower. These are all brassicates. So many of these natural pesticides are also found in the other brassica vegetables. But just in the paper, they're citing 49 natural pesticide metabolites that have been found in cabbage, many of which have been found to be carcinogenic in rats, and many of which have been found to induce DNA breaks, which is called clastogenicity, when studied in amounts that are easily obtainable in the human diet. So what I'm saying there is that these compounds were studied in the 80s and 90s, some of them, specifically like glucosinolates, which are precursors to things like sulforaphane, have been studied in studies that haven't really been repeated, but uh, because they've kind of fallen out of favor and we don't think about it this way anymore, and because those studies won't benefit anyone and they won't make anyone, no one stands to benefit from those studies financially, but they were studied in toxicology assays showing that these compounds caused chromosomal breaks in in um, in assays. So what we're dealing with here is this vast dark matter, this vast dark web of of plant toxins, these plant pesticides that we don't even know what they do, and we don't even know how they affect humans. And in the the ones that have been studied, really look like they could affect humans in a negative fashion. So it's pretty darn scary. And this is just one of the set of toxins in plants. Just to give people a little context, what we're talking about here is plant pesticides. There are also plant anti-nutrients, which are directly uh, uh, negative in terms of nutrient absorption. These would be things like phytic acid, which is a large molecule that chelates divalent cations. Um, it stores phosphorus in plant seeds, and it can chelate and pull out minerals in our own bodies that are also divalent cations. That is molecules with a plus two charge like magnesium and uh, copper and zinc and selenium. And these are important molecules, but that phytic acid molecule can create a net negative in those. Then there are things like oxalates, which is a two carbon molecule that uh, has been found to be toxic and is a precursor for kidney stones in many people. This is found in high concentrations in plants. There are nitrates, which can react with other compounds in our bodies to create substances called N-nitroso compounds that can lead to pre- cancerous lesions in the gut. These are like the nitrates people have heard about. So they're sometimes added to foods, but they're also in foods. Nitrates are in uh, plant foods at baseline, which is why celery powder is used as a nitrate source to add to like natural bacon because there is there are nitrates in celery and other plants. So the list goes on and on. There are so many of these uh, plant toxins 
that we're just never made aware of. Um, and then I'll just go back to the overarching, I think, misunderstanding was that there were epidemiology studies done showing that people who eat more fruits and vegetables have better outcomes, whether it's longer life or better cardiovascular outcomes. But what's important to point out here is that these are epidemiology studies. These are not interventional studies. And the epidemiology studies are unfortunately probably irrevocably confounded by what's called healthy user bias, which is this idea that when people are eating more fruits and vegetables, they are also doing other healthy behaviors, spending time with their family, they're of a higher socioeconomic status, they're exercising more, they're in the sun. And that this epidemiology studies can in no way, shape, or form distinguish whether it was the fruit and vegetable effect or the other healthy behavior effect that made people have these better health outcomes. All right, everybody, that's a wrap of part one with Dr. Paul Saladino. As you can hear, this guy's extremely bright, extremely well-researched, and has a valid research article or a number of them to back up every single one of his points. I encourage you to keep an open mind, and I don't advocate this as being the healthiest diet on the planet yet, right? I will tell you that I'm in the middle of a 30-day transformation right now or a 30-day experiment with this carnivore uh, diet where I'm eating about isocaloric to what I was eating before, meaning the same number of calories and just eliminating all other non-animal uh, sources of calories. So it's an interesting experiment. I feel really, really good mentally, physically. My inflammatory markers have actually gone down and I feel like my mobility feels better. My tension in my muscles is actually a little bit less. Um, so it's a really interesting thought. I just encourage every one of you to go into this with an open mind and potentially consider it as a tool in your tool belt for long-term health optimization. Do I say this is the best? No. Do I know definitively that we should not eat vegetables? Of course not. But as we continue to explore and expand our thought base, I think it's important to keep this as an option and an open mind in the reality that this could ultimately be a really, really useful tool in the long-term health of your body and the body of anyone you know who may be striving for optimal health and to live their greatest life and their greatest body. So I hope you enjoyed part one with Dr. Saladino, and I know you're going to love part two, where we dive even deeper into very specific topics around the carnivore diet and how it could be your optimal solution for living a long, healthy, and great life. And I will see you next time on the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. If you're not already subscribed, head over to iTunes right now and drop in your subscription so you get notified every single time we drop a podcast. We have so many great guests coming at you. You guys can see we've upgraded the podcast. We're upgrading our guests. And everybody is absolutely phenomenal in helping you and helping me live our greatest life in a body we love. Peace. Thank you so much for tuning in to Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.